You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 8th of December 2019 on Monocle 24. Sunday the 8th of December 2019, this is Monocle's House View with Emma Nelson and a very warm welcome to your weekend. Today, strikes bring France to a standstill. We'll look at how the country galvanised to take on the President's plans for pension reform. Also ahead, a summary of what the world learned this last week. And my studio guest, the writer Jonathan Fenby, will go through the day's newspapers too. Monocle's House View starts now. And I'm delighted to say that Jonathan Fenby, author of A History of Modern France, is that the name of your book? That is indeed. Uh, Available now (coughs) at all good booksellers. Yes, the history of France since the revolution to the present day. Marvellous. Uh, all, all available now. Joins me in the studio to go through today's newspapers and to deal with rather enormous events that have happened in France in the last couple of days. It has been four days now since some of the most widespread strikes in 20 years have crippled much of France. Try to take a train, a bus or a metro this weekend and you're likely to face a long walk instead. But this is a scaled-back weekend version of the action scene on Thursday when you Unions representing everyone from transport workers to lawyers, doctors, teachers and students threatened to bring France to a standstill until President Emmanuel Macron withdrew his plans to overhaul the country's pension system. Uh, Jonathan, lucky for us, you weren't able to go to France this weekend. I should have, been sitting, for in, you. I should have been sitting in the middle of the Auvergne at a friend's birthday party as we speak, but uh, all the trains were cancelled and air traffic controllers were on strike, so we didn't uh, take the risk of spending the weekend sitting in an airport. So this is just an example of really very widespread strikes which have managed to absolutely paralyse the country for a couple of days. Yes, absolutely. This is uh, rises from President Macron's uh, attempt to revise the pension uh, system in France, which many of his predecessors have also tried to do, but with uh, no success, uh, really, or very scant success and so on. Macron has made this a centre point of uh, his reform uh, of the country. And there is very, very widespread uh, opposition, obviously, because people feel they're going to be hit uh, right where it hurts um, in their, their pension payments. Emmanuel Macron says that this is simply modernising the pension system, for it to fall in line with every other Western nation, which is making the retirement age later and which is making it plainly aware that those large pots of money which used to be available aren't there anymore. Absolutely. Uh, it's to change the, the pension age, but it's also to uh, what Macron wants to do is to produce a uniform pension scheme uh, for the whole country, particularly for public sector workers. There are 42 different kinds of pension arrangements in France at the moment, some of which allow people to retire very early indeed in their early 50s and date from the time when, for instance, driving, uh, being a, a train driver, was a very arduous physical task. Now it's all done by a computer, and uh, one may wonder why train drivers have to uh, be allowed to retire at 52. Were you surprised? I think lots of us might be, but I think were you, were you surprised by 
just how widespread these changes, these protests were. There were, what, 800,000 people taking Mm. to the streets. It has got violent in the last couple of days. Mm. But this seemed to be much more than a strike against pensions. This seemed to be another cry against Emmanuel Macron. It's a cry against Emmanuel Macron, uh, to to some extent indeed. Uh, Polls show that a majority of people see the need for reform of the pension system, but a majority of people equally, although not quite as big a majority of people, don't trust the Macron administration to put it into effect. He's seen as being distant, superior, uh, working on another plane, Jupiterian, as he once said. Uh, put it. This also uh, feeds into the French uh, pretty deep feeling that uh, things like pensions are are linked to the state, to the republican system in France, that this is somehow a birthright which shouldn't be meddled with. Of course, a birthright uh, which is accompanied by a lot of personal uh, direct financial interest in it. It's also based, uh, reflects, I think, the, the readiness of the French to go uh, out on strike, which uh, everybody knows about. Uh, Figures I saw last week show that France is well ahead of other European and other uh, advanced uh, economies in the number of people who do go on strike. Uh, And this feeling that the part of being a French citizen is uh, getting out uh, in the street and uh, expressing your opinion. I've always had a theory about this, which is if you teach a little child about the events of 1789 when you bring down mm-hmm. the monarchy and you chop off the heads of those no. who wish to control you and take a superior view, if you instill that sense of active refusal in a small child, you will raise an entire nation which does not blink in terms of taking on the big boys. That that is indeed true, except um, as I show in my book, if I can refer to that, what you get in France is these repeated shifts between, if you like, the kind of action, uh, direct action by citizens, which you've just referred to, which upsets the country and everybody thinks, here comes another revolution and so on. And then a short time afterwards, you get a conservative backlash, indeed. I mean, the famous 1968 uh, May-June events, when everybody thought maybe France was tottering, De Gaulle was about to be brought down, and so on. Within uh, three months of that, you had the biggest conservative majority known uh, under the Fifth Republic returned in Parliament. So, you've got this swing, as the um, French saying goes, my heart is on the left, left, but my wallet is on the right. Uh, There is that feeling, though, that um, you mess with the French labour laws. Well, you mess with with French pensions at your peril. You mentioned there the fact that it is sort of like considered to be a birthright. Um, But there's the idea that Macron has already pushed through some pretty radical tax reforms. Mm. He's also managed to change the labour laws too. Uh, What is it about pensions? Or or what is it about... Is this actually going to be the thing that stops Macron in his tracks? I don't know if it'll stop him in his tracks, but it's certainly the big uh, test, I think, for him. And uh, having spoken to people uh, around the government and in the government uh, over the last year or so, one feels that uh, they see this as a long-term challenge, a long-term test. Macron expects, I think it can be said, to be re-elected. He's halfway through his first term of, of presidency, and particularly if he, his opponent in the uh, next election 
is, as it was last time round, uh, Le Pen and uh, the reborn National Front. Um, he expects to win and he expects really to have to spend five, seven years bringing through these kind of reforms. And uh, as he probably wouldn't put it quite <laughs> so openly, to re-educate the French uh, of the need to change the old Republican system. I mean, just reading um, the papers today, I think there's an article in Journal du Dimanche. There's an interview with Edouard Philippe, the French Prime Minister, and he said, um, quickly, the headline says that if the... Um, Withdraw if the pension reform is withdrawn, says Edouard Philippe. Um, he is worried that the reform will be tougher and more brutal at a later date. Is this yeah. what's likely to happen, or is this? I mean, or are we just going to see Edouard Philippe possibly ending as the ending as a fall guy, <laughs> and he gets chucked under a bus? Well, of course, you know there is a, a tradition of this that the prime minister, as you say, gets chucked under a bus when uh, the level of protest gets to a certain level. This happened in 1995 uh, when Alain Juppé, the prime minister, set out all kinds of reforms which led to uh, even bigger, I think, protests than we're seeing at the moment. And he was soon gone as President Jacques Chirac decided to uh, opt for peace and calm and re-election. Uh, and that that process always happens. The thing is that Macron is very personally involved in all this. He's put himself right at the centre of this reform programme. Uh, and really, you know, he lives or dies by it. What I find quite astonishing is that these... Um Demonstrations have taken place against pension reforms, which have not actually even been no. described in any great detail. No. Um, Edouard Philippe says that on Wednesday he's going to tell us all about what it's all yeah. about. And yet the people have just gone, no, we're not even entertaining this idea. Yeah, this goes back to what I was saying about this being a birthright. This is something you don't uh, question uh, really, uh, for for a lot of uh, the French people. And it must also be said that the trade unions uh, in France, particularly the CGT, the biggest trade union federation, um, see this as, I think, as a way of re-establishing their position after having been put on the back foot, really, over the last few years. We have another day of general strike planned for Tuesday. I mean, we saw the huge uh, demonstrations and the enormous number of people joining together last week. What are the possibilities that the public sector, who are naturally prone to going going on strike, will actually start to be brought, joined by the private sector this time? Uh, there may be some, but the private sector, I think, sees itself in a different uh, position still in France to the public sector. It's the public sector, really, and the, the leaders of public sector trade unions who make this link between the acquis social, as they're, they're known, the, 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 the perks, the advantages, if you say, which people who haven't got them would, would, would call them, um, that and the republic with a capital R. Um, and the far left, the CGT unions, have said that they that they object to a decision by the president Emmanuel Macron to um, change what they say is the best pension system in the world. And by what you've said, it sounds pretty good. Um, it's pretty good, but it costs fourteen percent of GDP. So, you know, <laughs> That's why it's there so is good. a cost for these things. That is why it's so good. But he's I mean, the the the, uh, the CGT union have said that this is an ideological decision by Macron. This is actually not a practical decision. This is mm. something that goes much much deeper in Macron's um, plan. That it's it's something that 
strikes deep at the heart of change, change, enacting profound reform in France, which desperately needs it. But at the same time, he can break the unions if he so desires. Well, he can either break the unions or he can try to bring the unions into a less uh, combative, if you like, stance and a more cooperative stance. Um, his I- ideal is often held up to be Scandinavia, where things seem to work uh, in a more uh, reasonable and amicable manner. Um, but that is a big change for a country which has always lived on the kind of clashes and the kind of ideological divisions which you referred to a moment ago and which run through really history since the revolution. This is Monocle's House View. We're live on your Sunday morning here at Midori House after, after another lively week in the news. I'm joined in the studio by the author Jonathan Fenby. He'll be uh, staying with us in the next few minutes to go through the newspapers. We might be doing some coverage of what is happening with the strikes in France. But first, with a look at what we might have learned from this past week's headlines, here's Andrew Muller. We learned this week that the skin of US President Donald Trump is not merely the weirdly orangest substance on earth, but also the thinnest. The most powerful man in the world flounced ahead of schedule from this week's NATO summit somewhere near London after footage emerged of his fellow alliance leaders chortling at the expense of his bountiful foibles. president is not, in fairness, the first person to have seized on any excuse to leave Watford early. We and Donald Trump also learned that California Senator Kamala Harris will not be the next president of the United States. She withdrew from the stampede seeking the Democratic Party's nomination for next year's election, to the disappointment of those anticipating that the debates between Harris and Trump might have been pleasingly evocative of a piñata being lustily thrashed with a cricket bat, or in a comparison more readily illustrated with archive audio, Harris's previous interrogations of of Trump's former Attorney General and Alabama State Gnome, Jeff Sessions. Sir, I'm sure you prepared for this hearing today and most of the questions that have been presented to you were uh, predictable. So my question to you is, did you then review with the lawyers of your department, if you as the top lawyer are unaware, what the law is regarding what you can share with us and what you cannot share with us? We learned that Finland's Prime Minister had resigned. As the world gamely resisted any urge to panic, Monocle's Helsinki correspondent Petri Burtsov explained the situation on Tuesday's briefing. When the employees of the Finnish Postal Service went on strike in a move to oppose 30% salary cut, and several sectors of society then joined in this strike, which more or less paralysed the country for a few days. As part of the political backlash of the whole saga, it emerged that the Prime Minister Antti Rinne had made some false statements to the parliament. We learned that maps of North Korea will require updating to the tune of one city, or as the official line has it, one epitome of modern civilization. North Korean leader Kim Jong-un took a break from his recent schedule of looking pensive on a horse to cut the ribbon on Samjion, a conurbation near the North Korean holy site of Mount Paektu. Rodong Sinmun, the official newspaper of the Central Committee of the Workers' Party of Korea, and not 
it is often suspected always the most rigorous invigilator of the regime, further reported, thus the steadfast faith and will of the party and people of the DPRK to add eternal luster to Kim Jong-il's immortal revolutionary history and exploits has been fully demonstrated and a revolutionary springboard for successfully implementing the party's plan for local construction provided. One can only hope this lost something in the translation. On Tuesday's briefing, we asked the UK's former ambassador to North Korea, John Everard, for a more nuanced view. It was built largely to poke the Americans in the eye effectively. I mean, the Americans have been trying to impose economic sanctions on North Korea for many years now in response to the nuclear program. And this is Kim Jong-un's way of saying that, no, never mind economic sanctions, I can go and build an entire new city. Yeah, sucks to you. We learned that efforts to defend the English language from the predations of unlettered barbarians take their toll on even the most indefatigable pedants. The Apostrophe Protection Society threw in the towel after 18 years of wearily reminding people of the difference between its and its and your and your and that there is never any cause for apostrophes in plurals. This latter transgression, especially in a truly civilised society, would be punishable by flogging with a knotted rope. Here's Robin Lustig on Monday's edition of The Briefing. I kind of share his sadness that the apostrophe is so badly misused and abused, but I accept that language changes, grammar changes. It's something organic. If people don't like the apostrophe, they're not going to use the apostrophe. We learned, to our barely containable excitement, that the Yevla goat has a spokesperson, at which a line of explanation is probably in order for any listeners who've missed our previous manifold canings of this subject. Every year in the Swedish port of Yevla, they build an immense straw goat at Christmas, and almost every year it gets burnt down by some miscreant scofflaw or ne'er-do-well. Here is the Yevla goat's human representative on Thursday's briefing. The Yavle goat is uh, uh, guarded 24-7 and that has proved to be very effective and stops the most spontaneous attacks uh, after a party night out. There are many <laughs> drunk people that have set the Yavle goat on fire during the years. We learned that any Yahoo may now market their vinegar as balsamic, whatever balsamic even means. The European Court of Justice decided that the vinegar makers of Modena province in Italy, which had long laid exclusive claim to the adjective, had been pushing their luck, and that balsamic was not a word with particular geographic resonance. This was shaping as the setup for some joke about how the Italian farmers are still at least well dressed. Vinegar dressing, you can see where it was going, but it does doesn't really stick, but I'd already written it down. Thanks. It's appreciated. We learned of an exciting new initiative to reduce wastage and indeed washing up aboard aircraft. Air New Zealand is going to trial edible coffee cups made by a local company. The receptacles, proclaimed leak-proof, are made of a vanilla-flavoured biscotti. While this is obviously to be encouraged, it does seem weird that the airline industry has cracked edible crockery before they've figured out drinkable coffee. And we learned that Australians associate one particular adjective with themselves more than any other. The Australia Talks National Survey asked respondents for three words to summarise their identity. Topping the poll was honest. And this must be true because, self-evidently, my people would not lie to you.
And with that flagrant cherry-picking of the facts to reinforce the prejudices of the commentator, for Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Miller. Thank you very much indeed, Andrew. And as, we, and as I last checked, the Yevla goat is still upright and in one piece. You're listening to Monocle's House View here with me, Emma Nelson and Jonathan Femby. In a moment, we go through the newspapers. Konnichiwa. For its bumper December-January issue, Monocle heads to Japan and delivers a guide to a fascinating nation with an exciting year ahead. Here are five top picks from what you'll find inside. First, meet Kumamon, the furry mascot that's the darling of Kumamoto Prefecture thanks to its infectious brand of soft power. Second, we take to the skies with Mitsubishi Aircraft Corporation as the company releases the first aircraft to be designed and built in Japan in decades. Third, we look ahead to the stadiums, venues and developments that will host next year's Olympics and prove this country's architectural sensibility still has plenty to teach to the rest of the world. Fourth, we drop into the new London outpost of Snowpeak, the brand bringing its cool camping kit to urbanites keen to escape the concrete jungle. Fifth, we lead you on a whistle-stop tour of all the shops, neighbourhoods and cities you should hit up for a successful Christmas spree. From hats to wooden toys, candle holders to ceramics, we've got your present list sorted. Monocle's December-January issue is available now at monocle.com. Never miss a copy. Head to the website and subscribe now. Welcome back if you've just joined us on your Sunday. This is Monocle's House View live from Midori House. It's Emma Nelson here, joined by my guest, the writer Jonathan Femby. Jonathan, you've been furiously going through <laughs> the newspapers. It's amazing how quickly all that all that newsprint can be subbed down into three or four key points. What is it that uh, caught your eye today? Well, obviously, what's dominating the newspapers is the election coming up uh, in Britain uh, this week. And uh, Is it really this week? It is. It is finally a right. It's coming. See, I, 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 no, I think it is. It is. It's on its way, and I suspect it might be happening on Thursday. Um, it is happening on Thursday. I've already cast my vote. How, I thought I was going to be out of the country, so well, a postal vote. You've but, exercised no. your democratic right. I've actually had a lot of people who live abroad, but still have, but are still who've been abroad, but are still uh, registered here. I don't think I've ever been asked to cast so many proxy votes in all my life. I'm go- I've got a sort of like a wad of a sort of a small notebook full of proxy p- pieces proxy of votes. paper. Well, the Observer here has a big spread on the 50 seats uh, where vital seats, uh, the newspaper calls it, where tactical voting can keep the Tories out, which the Observer says uh, it wants to do. Uh, the paper says the uh, one should vote to deny Boris Johnson the opportunity to wreck existential damage on the the country, and here are the 50 seats where you can do it. Now, if you don't live in one of those 50 seats, as I don't, um, I'm not sure how you're meant to act. Um, I think we're all supposed to be tactical, tactically voting. We're at, are we tactically voting Johnson. or are we not? But anyway, Johnson is 10 points ahead. Um, the Sunday Times front page has a big picture of him uh, acting as a goalkeeper on an election tour uh, in Cheshire. Uh, 
exchanging a, a, a deep handshake with Father Christmas, who presumably was also in goal uh, at that point, and uh, that would give the Conservatives a 30-plus uh, majority, clear majority in the House of Commons. So uh, Johnson will be able to go ahead with Brexit. But he also, uh, according to the Sunday Times, predicts a British baby boom if there's Brexit. Apparently, we'll all start procreating yes, after that. we're going to furiously make love after Boris Johnson becomes yes. Prime Minister. I have no idea what the connection there might be. I'm... Well, he says the same thing happened after the London Olympics. So he brings babies. Does he? Well, I think quite a lot of people would quite like to find out how many babies he has actually. Oh, that remains, that will remain a secret. That's the big secret. Um, Also, we have the the idea that um, there's been quite a lot of criticism in the press in the last couple of days about the way that the media has approached the election Mm. insofar as um, party politics, the Conservatives and the Labour Party generally being the two heavyweights who slug it out with what's known as the minority parties, such as the Liberal Democrats, sort of being seen as a a sort of of on the margins. However, some people have said that this was the wrong way to approach the coverage of this election, given the fact that before we went into the election, people had said that party politics had been shattered insofar as we were now aligning ourselves as as Remain voters or Brexit voters or right or left and that the structure no longer held. What are your thoughts on that, Jonathan? Well, I think actually the way the campaign uh, has developed and the way that it's been handled by the two major parties has actually brought a polarisation back into two camps. Um, This is a more, in a way, a more ideological uh, election than one we've seen for a long time because one was used, you know, post-Thatcher, you had Blair bringing the Labour Party into uh, a new relationship with the market, with some, at least some of the, the Thatcher uh, changes and so on. Uh, then Cameron's compassionate conservatism and so on. There was this blurring in the centre. Now, uh, and you can see that um, ideologically and indeed in, at times personally uh, between Corbyn and Johnson, this is a much more presidential and ideological ideological uh, presidential divide and ideological uh, contest uh, than we've seen before. Nonetheless, when you see them, the ideology may well be there, but at the end of the day, it's Boris Johnson going to be goalie and Jeremy Corbyn <laughs> serving up coffee and jam. It's any kind of... And, and not losing a, a moment to talk about the NHS, as indeed he does in an article in The Observer uh, again today. OK, any other stories that have caught your eye? Well, there's the vegan Christmas uh, offerings and so on. Uh, again, this is in The <laughs> you Observer. You sound so uneasy. I used to edit The Observer. I don't want to be accused of any um, quoting it too often here, but uh, it caught my eye. There are... Uh, the top uh, vegan Christmas offerings are B- 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 uh, barbecue ribs made from peas, um, vegan caviar made from kelp and seaweed, and top of the menu, uh, tofurkey, if that's the right way of pronouncing it. I think that's it. a rude word, tofurkey. Jonathan. Well, tofurkey, I'm going to walk around saying, have you had your tofurkey today? <laughs> tofurkey roast, which is vegan turkey joint. Okay, no. and uh, which is and going you to get be... that, and you can finish with vegan camembert uh, style of cheese made from cashew nuts. I have had some of the nut cheese. How that works, I'm, I can't think. It doesn't. Um, I mean, it just begs me to ask, what is going to be on the Fenby Christmas table this year? Well, it's is a goose. Going to be I think it's a goose. It's a goose, and it's not. It's not vegan. Has no. there been any kind of discussion of veganism in the household? 
No. Uh, the question was, should we have a turkey or should we have a goose? And we decided to have a goose. Wonderful. OK, I actually have a jar of the vegan caviar in my fridge. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to see what happens. OK, what else have we found? Well, uh, if you go to across the channel to Le Monde, which is publishing despite the strikes uh, in France, uh, their lead slash story is not about the, the strikes at all, uh, but in their weekend edition is about uh, proof uh, being brought up, uh, they say, of Russian uh, interference in President Macron's campaign in 2017. This is Russian hackers going into the Macron campaign's uh, website, um, getting all kinds of information. It's not quite clear from this what they did with it. This, is a, this is a huge... I don't think it ever is. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I think that's the point. Uh, what... what um, I mean, is anybody that surprised that the Russians had a go at the uh, at, at, at the Macron campaign? No, because I mean, I think there was a, a general feeling that uh, Moscow would welcome uh, the, the rise of the National Front, as it was then called, uh, and Marine Le Pen as a spoiler uh, in the French uh, election, particularly in the, the second round uh, of the election against Macron. Uh, it didn't do much good because you got only a third of the vote. Um, but this uh, has given. Uh, rise to a good new French phrase, les Macron leaks. Um, it's a difficult situation for Macron, given the fact that he has been the one who has publicly said, let's reach, let's reach out to Moscow. Absolutely, Where does yes. this leave him with this? Well, uh, he'll still go on with, uh, we have got to reach out to Moscow. This is all part of his uh, attempt to uh, get Europe to pull its socks up with himself uh, in the lead, uh, of course, there, which he would say includes working out um, a constructive European policy uh, towards Russia. Um, I don't think this will interfere um, with, with, with that policy. Um, it's more, I think, just a, a sign that interference is everywhere and um, politicians are going to have to be much more careful. We'll have to leave it there, Jonathan Fenby. Thank you so much for joining us on Monocle's House View, live from Midori House in London. That's all we have time for today. Thanks to our supervising producer, Ben Ryland, our researcher, Nick Toomey, and our studio manager, Nora Harrell. In a moment, we broadcast live from our Christmas market here in London. Throughout the day, I'll be stepping out and braving the chill. I'm told there's a large glass of glue vine with, it, with my name on it. Stay tuned, and if you're in London, pop down and visit us here in the heart of Marlebone. I'm Emma Nelson, that's Monocle's House View. Goodbye, thank you very much for listening. Have a good weekend. <laughs> <laughs>